Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. Hello and welcome. I'm Anderson Cooper in New York. And I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. This is our 19th CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. It's being seen around the world tonight on CNN International, CNN Espanol, and also streamed on CNN.com. Well, since the last time we gathered, just last week, nearly 8,000 more Americans have lost their lives, pushing the death toll over the 150,000 mark in this country. Shortly before airtime, we got word that University of Washington researchers have revised their estimates, up, uh, their estimates upward, predicting almost 231,000 fatalities in this country alone by November. We also saw another 1.4 million file jobless claims and the economy shrink by the largest percentage on record. Since our last town hall one week ago, COVID deaths have reached new highs in Florida, in Texas, in California, with more states now in danger of their own surge in cases. We've spoken to an ER doctor in El Paso who had to treat a patient in the hospital parking lot because there was no room inside. And we reported on people waiting so long for test results that it's often useless for keeping the people around them safe. In the seven days since our last town hall, we've watched the President of the United States attend yet more events where mask wearing is shunned and social distancing is non-existent. We've seen just today a former presidential candidate, Herman Cain, who attended one of those uh, president's uh, campaign events in Tulsa last month, die of the virus. We've also seen the president re-embrace unproven science and treatments for the disease. And late today, he spoke to reporters about the virus. Given what's happening with Major League Baseball and now today the Rutgers football team is quarantined, how can you assure people that schools will be safely reopened? So can you assure anybody of anything? I do say, again, young people are almost immune to this disease. The younger, the better. I guess they're stronger. They're stronger. They have a stronger immune system. It's an incredible thing. Nobody's ever seen this before. Various types of flu will hurt young people more than older people. But young people are almost immune. If you look at the percentage. Anderson, uh, that isn't accurate. And we're going to talk about why that is in just a moment. But joining us tonight will be two White House task force, uh, coronavirus task force members, Admiral Brett Girard and Dr. Anthony Fauci. They're both going to be here tonight taking your questions. Also, legendary sports journalist Bob Costas. And again, we want to take your questions as well. You can tweet them to us with the hashtag CNN Town Hall, or you can leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. A lot of you have sent uh, in questions already in video form. You can see some of them up on the screen, and we'll try to get to as many as we can tonight. We also have reports from around the country and around the world. We start with where we are right now, with nearly 4.5 million confirmed cases and almost 152,000 American lives now lost. States in what the White House calls the red zone 
Florida, California, Texas, and Arizona remain a large concern. The White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks, said there are signs that cases in those states are leveling off. Concern is also high for states the White House task force has marked in the yellow zone. Now we see the virus, probably because of vacations and other reasons of travel, moving up into Kentucky, Tennessee, southern Ohio, Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska. The director of the CDC also now admitting the federal government was too slow in trying to stop the virus initially. The introduction from Europe happened before we realized what was happening. In the world of professional sports, 19 members of Major League Baseball's Miami Marlins have tested positive, continuing a debate on whether any sport should return this season at all. The NBA still trying to move forward for now. If we had any significant spread whatsoever, we would certainly stop immediately. With schools reopening, Dr. Anthony Fauci points out there are still a lot of unknowns. This may sound a little scary and harsh, I don't mean it to be that way, is that you're going to be actually part of the experiment of the learning curve of what we need to know. On the vaccine front, phase three clinical trials are beginning this week for the vaccine developed by Moderna. Approximately 30,000 people will start getting shots over the next few weeks. There's optimism, but it is cautious. We really need to be very careful to manage expectations. We have a long way to go to make sure that we have a safe and effective vaccine. Corners cannot be cut. Well, in a moment, we'll get the latest from Moscow, where officials are claiming success for Russian science on a vaccine of their own. But first, Sanjay, what's your take on, on where things stand at this moment? Well, I think we're in a suspended state of cautious optimism, especially with the vaccine, uh, Anderson. The FDA is now saying it may issue emergency use authorization of a vaccine even in a matter of the next several weeks. That's the kind of speed I think a lot of people are hoping for, but it's also making some of the medical community a little nervous. I mean, keep in mind, that's at least four times faster than some of the fastest vaccines have ever been developed in the past and 10 to 20 times faster than most vaccines. We also know that even if we do have a vaccine by the end of the year, uh, it doesn't work like a switch. It doesn't go on and off. Just because we have a vaccine doesn't mean the virus magically goes away. But the good news, I think, we're learning more and more that so many places around the world, even without a vaccine, even without a magical therapy, have returned to some sense of normalcy because the basics really do work. Distancing, masks, hand hygiene, this is within our reach. I mean, just today, researchers at MD Anderson estimated that two weeks, just two weeks of social distancing reduced the spread of the coronavirus by 65% globally. Wow. We could do that here as well. Finally, Anderson, you mentioned this as we're continuing to learn more about kids in schools. Uh, we now know that young children can carry 10 to 100 times more of the virus's genetic material in their noses as compared to older children and adults, 10 to 100 times more. The question is, does that make them more likely to spread? We still don't know the answer to that, which is why I've said from the beginning that we all have to behave, Anderson, like we have the virus. And I just want to be clear about something that you mentioned earlier. The president said late today, quote, young people are almost immune to this disease. That, that's just not true, right? No, that's, that's not true. Well, first of all, we know that they're maybe less likely to get sick, but they can get sick still. Some even die. But the big question is, even if they get infected, can they still spread it? to teachers, to parents, to grandparents. And you know, if you're older than 10, the answer is yes. You spread it just as much of an adult, as an adult. Younger than that, we're still trying to learn, Anderson. 
Sanjay, yesterday's upsetting, not surprising development was Louis Gohmert, a congressman from Texas who's very skeptical about masks and has been seen on camera uh, talking to people without a mask, wandering around Capitol Hill without a mask, very close to uh, Attorney General Barr without a mask. Uh, he tested positive. Today, it was the far sadder news that former Republican presidential candidate Herman Cain has died. He attended the president's mask optional rally in Tulsa last month. He became ill just a short time uh, later. The president began his briefing with that before moving off in a, in a bunch of different directions. Our White House correspondent, Caitlin Collins, joins us now with details. So, Caitlin, I mean, this week the president has been more vocal about the crisis, the coronavirus crisis, but he's continues to be making more false claims and, and uh, even medically. Yeah, that was the point of these briefings, bringing them back, is that it could boost the president's standing because the White House and his campaign realized how damaged it was with voters, especially when it comes to coronavirus, and that people did not think he was doing a good job of handling it. But you have to look at how these briefings have gone for the last several days and question the strategy there, because even today you saw the president you know, saying something like what you all were talking about, kids are immune. The science is out on that. And even Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, the people who work for the president and are helping him navigate this have said as much. They've pointed to studies like the one in South Korea, a really big study that said children over the age of 10 can spread it just as much as adults. And the president seems to dismiss the concern about what it really shows when it comes to kids. As you know, he's saying something like, well, how can you assure anyone when kids go back to school if their kids are going to be safe, saying you couldn't really assure them of anything. But it's not just that. The president was also trying to downplay the surges of the virus that we've seen here in the United States by comparing us to other countries that got the virus under control and then have seen surges of their own. Though, really, if you look at the numbers, it's a lot different because those countries got it under control. The numbers that they're seeing now are still not in comparison to what we are seeing on a daily basis here in the United States. You know, uh, Caitlin, also, you know, we mentioned earlier, sadly, Herman Cain, uh, who was a friend and supporter of the president, he just passed away from the coronavirus, I believe in his mid-70s. Do do we know where, where he contracted the virus, where he got the infection? We don't know. And we should caution. His family said he'd been traveling, traveling a lot in the month of June. But on June 20th, he was there in the stands with all of the other surrogates that the campaign encouraged to come at the president's indoor rally where a lot of people were not wearing masks. And you can see from the photo, he was seen not wearing a mask in several pictures, though he later said he was wearing one. And just a few days after that, nine days after that, he contracted the virus. He tested positive. And then two days after that, he was in the hospital where he has been for the last four months until he passed away, which is incredibly sad for his family. And it was notable as the president came out to the briefing today to address it, to talk about his friend and his death. He did not mention that Herman Cain had been at his rally on June 20th, that rally that drew so much criticism because it was not following any of the social distancing or safe practices that health experts have encouraged. Galen Collins, thanks very much. Uh, Sanjay, I just want to be clear. I mean, if he if he would tested positive nine days uh, after that rally, um, is there any way to know if it was at that rally that that he he contracted this? It, it would be it would be hard to, to know because if he traveled in between, uh, you know, the the likelihood that from the time of exposure to time that someone tests positive, you know, anywhere from you know a few days to fourteen days typically. So it's certainly within the range, hmm. but that's part of the problem with not having good contact tracing, which I know is a whole separate issue. Anderson, you and I have talked about. Right. We still have a very hard time tracing then where these infections came from, yeah. which would be helpful to slowing it down. Yeah, uh, more now in Florida, which is facing a bad storm in addition to COVID fatalities that are still rising. And Randy Kay joins us now from West Palm Beach. What's the latest? 
Anderson, nearly 10,000 new cases here in the state of Florida and a record number of deaths, 253 deaths to report. This is the third day in a row that we've seen a record number of deaths. Yesterday, we saw 216 deaths. We also have more than 6,500 Floridians uh, who have already died from the coronavirus. Statewide, the positivity rate is 19.3 percent. That's well above the 10 percent threshold that they're looking for. And still about 8,400 people hospitalized in the state here. Uh, Also, less than 17 percent of all ICU beds are left in the state and nearly 50 hospitals say they don't have any ICU beds left at all. And on top of these very disturbing numbers, the state of Florida is now bracing for a tropical storm or a possible hurricane in the next day or so. So Florida has decided to close all state run coronavirus testing sites, including the one that I'm at just behind me here. They were out here earlier in the day and they were pulling down the tents and the poles and they got rid of some of the cones because these sites just cannot withstand those hurricane force winds, if that's what it comes to. So they got rid of this site, including eight other sites here in Palm Beach County and 13 sites in the hardest hit county, Miami-Dade. I got to say, you know, my parents live in Florida. We have this conversation all the time. Those numbers are are hard to hear. Randy, I do want to ask about the Miami Marlins Major League Baseball. We we hear they're they're struggling. I believe 19 players now out of 30 have tested positive. What are they going to do? I mean, especially as basketball is also getting underway there in Florida. Right. The Marlins are definitely uh, having a hard time with this. 19 players and coaches testing positive. Their season is on pause for at least the next six games. They have another training facility here uh, in Jupiter, Florida, where they could pull some players from if they do get underway again and they think it's safe. Uh, But then you have basketball, which seems to be doing things right. Just uh, up the road from here in Orlando and Orange County, uh, they have all the teams are living in what they're calling the bubble on the Walt Disney World Resort property. And they kick off their season tonight. You have two games. You have the Pelicans and the Jazz and the Clippers and the Lakers. And the good news, unlike the baseball teams, all um, 344 basketball players have been tested. Uh, they were tested since July 20th, and not a single one of them has tested positive for coronavirus. So certainly some good news there. Randy, thanks very much for that. Uh, more now on what the coming school year may look like. In Miami-Dade County, for instance, schools will be all remote when they reopen late next month. Yesterday, the Indianapolis School Board recommended the same. Today, Fort Worth Public Schools pushed their school year back three weeks and said at least the first month of it will be all digital, not in person. New York City schools will be a mix. These have all been obviously difficult decisions for schools, uh, superintendents, and communities across the country on tight deadlines. And news like today's study on young kids and the virus may only add to the pressure. Gary Tuckman tonight is in the small city of Jefferson, Georgia, about 60 miles northeast of Atlanta, where the school year starts tomorrow. So what are the schools where you are planning on doing? Well, Anderson, what I should tell you is that most of the students in this nation are still on summer vacation. But in some spots in the country, the last week of July is the end of summer. This is one of those spots. Jefferson, Georgia, it's about an hour northeast of Atlanta. It's a very small town with a very well-renowned school system. This elementary school is one of the four schools in this small school district, and tomorrow it opens for every student who wants to be here, all four schools. Now, the superintendent says if students don't want to come, if they want to learn virtually, they can still do that. And about 5% of the 4,000 students, or 200, have elected to stay home and learn on computer, but the rest will be coming. The protocols in place, desks are going to be spaced apart, students aren't going to be facing each other, an intense cleaning regimen of of chalkboards, whiteboards, 
doorknobs, doors, desks that will be going out throughout the day. Also, for the small students in the elementary school here, they will not be allowed to go in the lunchroom. They will have to have lunch in their classroom. They will be allowed to have recess, but only a few students at a time. And when everyone leaves school, whether it's the high school or the elementary school, they will do it in a staggered style. What's hmm. important to mention, there will not be daily temperature checks here, Anderson. Other schools will be doing that around the country. They're telling students to be checked before they come. They will be doing random checks, no daily checks. And then masks, that's a big issue. For students who go on the bus, they have to wear a mask, so does the bus driver. But inside the school, no mask required for students or for teachers. Strongly encouraged, recommended. Everyone gets a mask, but they don't have to wear it. The superintendent says they are following CDC guidelines, that not every student can medically wear a mask. But there are many parents here in this very Republican county who think it's political. They want their children to go to school. They're telling their children, do not take off your mask no matter what. And then there are other parents who are saying, our students should have the choice. They doubt the effectiveness of masks. And they are telling their children, if you don't want to wear the mask, you don't have to wear the mask. All right. Gary Tuckman. Gary, thanks very much. Russia next and what one top Kremlin financier is calling, quote, a Sputnik moment, a vaccine with approval being promised in less than two weeks, despite concerns about the safety, effectiveness and where the corners were cut in developing it. CNN's Matthew Chance is in Moscow with uh, some new reporting now on the selling of this. So what do we actually know about this, uh, this vaccine and most importantly, whether it works or not? Well, as what we know is that it's going to be approved on uh, August the te- you know on, on the on August the tenth, which is in you know, just over a week from now, which of course makes it by far the first vaccine to be approved by any country in this uh, global pandemic. That's why Russian officials are calling it a Sputnik moment, because just like the successful launch of that first satellite into space in the 1950s by the Sa- by the Soviet Union, uh, they're casting this as a major technological leap. Uh, forward. We also know that, you know, over the coming weeks and months, you know, thousands, if not millions of Russians, uh, starting with frontline healthcare workers, are going to be vaccinated with this. And according to Russian officials, at least 20 other countries uh, have expressed interest in, in the vaccine. And so, you know, it looks like it could be a significant moment in the response to this uh, uh, global uh, pandemic. In terms of, well, it's safe and effective, well, it's harder to answer because, you know, human trials, the norms about that have been completely ignored by the Russians. They haven't even completed the trials before this uh, before this is approved for public use. Um, and the, the results and the tests they have done have not been released to the public so far, mm. though they say they're going to do that soon. So it hasn't been peer-reviewed. And so we just can't say whether it's effective or if it even works, or if it's even safe. I, I imagine there's, there's going to be a lot of appropriate skepticism of this. Have, have they been approached, uh, Russian, the Russians, uh, Matthew, by the United States government, do you know, or any American companies? Yeah, well, Sanjay, tonight we've learned exclusively from uh, Russian officials that actually there have been some private U.S. pharmaceutical companies that have approached the the Russians uh, for information about this vaccine. They're not telling us which companies are not telling us the uh, the state of those negotiations. But they are saying that there's no official approach been made from the United States. You know, the Trump administration is not buying up uh, millions of doses uh, of this Russian vaccine at this stage. The Russians, though, uh, say they are open to that kind of cooperation. But privately, uh, what they're saying to me is that, look, they, they think it's highly unlikely that will happen. The fact that this vaccine is Russian, they say, is, you know, is toxic in, in itself politically, uh, which um, which they say is a shame because obviously the U.S. has a massive coronavirus problem, just like Russia does. And millions of Americans, Russian officials say, could benefit from this vaccine. Matthew Chance, thanks very much. Uh, we'll see what happens there. As we said, two White House task force members taking your questions tonight. Coming up next, Admiral Brett Giroir and later, Dr. Anthony Fauci. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
quick note before uh, continuing. A moment ago, we said Herman Cain, who died, spent four months in the hospital after falling ill with COVID. In fact, it was four weeks. Apologize for the mistake. A lot surrounding tonight's town hall, whether it's the new fatality projections from the University of Washington or all the developments on vaccines and treatments, questions about testing. In addition, there are calls from the American, uh, American Association of Medical Colleges and others for a new national approach to the entire crisis. Joining us, sorry, go ahead, Sanjay. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so joining us now, take your questions uh, shortly. You have a lot of questions you've sent in. Is White House Task Force member Dr. Brett Giroir, and in addition to being an admiral in the United States Public Health Service, Commissioned Corps, he's also Assistant Secretary for Health at the Department of Health and Human Services. Admiral, welcome. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. We really appreciate it. Um, Quest Diagnostics said Monday that it's struggling to meet the demands for tests with turnaround times. They said more than two days for top priority patients, seven days for all other patients. Um, I spoke to Maryland's Governor Larry Hogan on Wednesday. He was saying his state labs are turning around results quickly. He said national private labs can be taken up to 10 days. Uh, You know, we had Bill Gates on. He said, you know, a 10 day turnaround, a two week turnaround is essentially meaningless. Do, Do you Do you agree with that? I mean, 10 days, is that acceptable? So I'm so glad you asked me that. And this is one thing I wanted to make sure we got the real data out to the American people. Um, Nationally, about 25% of tests are point of care. So that's about 15 minutes. Another 25% are done in local hospitals. And unless you're in the middle of an outbreak, like Dr. Gupta was last week near Emory, that's generally a quick turnaround what we really talk about is the big commercial labs, and there's no question they've been strained, and Quest has been strained more than the other commercial labs. Um, our data right now, and this is the worst week, is that uh, 56% are back within three days, 76% are back within five days, and we know that's getting better from a lot of technology, like LabCorp announced two to three day turnaround on routine. So. Absolutely. We want tests back as quickly as possible. I've said and I've said before, I want the perfect test. I want it to be perfectly sensitive and and specific and back within 15 minutes. That's why we're really working towards more point of care. But again, it is a work in progress because of the tremendous demand. Yeah. I mean, but but you agree that a a 10 day or turnaround, I mean, it does make the test kind of meaningless because who knows what that person has done Mm -hmm. over the last 10 days. I know you've said you're never going to be happy with testing until we get a turnaround time. I think you've said 24 hours. Do you have a sense of when that when when that will be? Well, um, we're going to have many more point of care tests by September. We expect more than half the tests in the country to be point of care. And because we have more of that, that's why we're sending that point of care to every nursing home uh, in the country, starting with the first 2,000 most at risk. And you probably heard that last week. And let me just talk about the 10 to 14 day turnaround. Um, And I'm going to give a little hyperbole, but, um, you know, if you're waiting uh, to get that test so you can go on travel to Aruba, um, you probably can wait because you probably don't need the test to begin with. Now, I realize that's hyperbole. We really want it to be... um, at a much lower time. Uh, But no matter what, when you're waiting for a test or not, you need to do the things we're talking about. And I know you guys have emphasized so much. You got to wear a mask. You got to avoid crowds. You got to avoid indoor places. And whether you have a positive test or negative test, you really need to continue to do that. That's so important. Um, And we know that's very effective in stopping the spread. So, so just as I'm clear, you think in terms of a date for 24-hour turnaround, you said said by September... Half the tests will be point of care so, tests, meaning very quick tests. Yeah, yeah. So, look, you know, everything is sort of in in layers depending on vulnerability, and and 
you guys are sophisticated and your audience is, um, hospitalized patients really need within 24 hours. Nursing homes, ideally, and that's why they're first prioritized because of the tremendous mortality risk in nursing homes in the close situations. That's why we're moving to point of care within 15 minutes. By September, we'll have about half the tests in the country will be point of care between 15 and 20 million, not assuming any new technology just based on what we're doing. Hmm. Um, you might have heard later this, or earlier this afternoon um, a pretty large investment into BD to expand their Veritor platform, which is one of our two platforms. And you'll be hearing more, um, more financing uh, tomorrow from the National Institutes of Health, um, who'll be announcing more awardees uh, early in the morning. Can we just talk about the number of tests, which you and I have talked about in the past, but the big issue, uh, Admiral, is this is a virus that can spread asymptomatically, so you don't have to be sick to spread it. So in order to seem seemingly adequately address that, you got to do surveillance. You said it's hyperbole, you know, to, to talk about the person who's traveling or whatever, but we got to find those people, and some have suggested that requires up to 20 yes. million tests a day. When will we be using it as more of a proactive tool versus reactive to sort of find hotspots? Well, we, we, we are using it as a proactive tool and um, in two different ways. Number one, we, as we talked about last week, we have sufficient testing to know when a hotspot's starting, and that's really very important uh, when the percent positivity goes up. And, you know, you can't test your way out of these. You have to institute the measures. Um, limit that indoor spread by, you know, bars are a big source, uh, indoor dining that's crowded, mask wearing, it really needs to be well over 90% when these start going up in good hygiene and you can stop it. We're also surging to areas where this happens. Um, you talked about Miami earlier in the show. Um, we have a surge site in Miami. We're exploring even a second surge site in Miami. We announced New Orleans and Bakersfield, California today. So we're surging in sort of massing testing resources to try to get as many of those asymptomatics as possible. So we are doing that, but you are correct. We can't surge everywhere in the country at the same time. We do have a limitation on the number of tests available. That's going to expand greatly, particularly with pooling and other techniques. But there is a finite limitation of what we have, um, and we're working with that to surge to the areas of most need. It, you know, it does feel like, Admiral, that we've been behind on testing for, for some time. And again, you and I have talked about this. It's been a point of contention, I know. But mm -hmm. you mentioned Emory. Uh, you know, I was operating last week. Uh, I was doing brain surgery right. on someone. We could get a CAT scan on them. We could get coagulation numbers on them. We can do cardiac testing on them. But we couldn't get a COVID test on the patient. Therefore, everyone had to be in personal protective equipment, you know, the, the N95 masks and other things during the operation. That that. At the end of July now, sir, that seems like that, that's not acceptable at this point. So, so I'll comment on that specifically. Um, and no, it, it shouldn't be acceptable. Um, and that's why I called uh, Dr. Del Rio after we got off the phone to say, hey, what's, you know, who's a great colleague and infectious disease specialist? We work on HIV together. Um, and he said, it, he said generally they're really in good shape, but because they had such a severe outbreak around the Atlanta area, they got overwhelmed and, you know, I offered to do what I do to any other hospital to work to improve that. And he thought once they get over this backlog, they would be, you know, in, in, in reasonably good shape. Um, but, you know, there's always going to be a ceiling, Sanjay. We started out doing only, a, when I took this over in March 12th, we we're doing about 2,500 tests a day. Now we're doing 820,000. 
um, had to do the math. That's a 32,000% increase. We need to do a lot more and have a lot more available. And I can tell you that I have many sleepless nights leaving no stone unturned trying to improve uh, testing but maintain quality because if there's a test that only detects half the people or a third of the people, it's not really going to help you uh, because you won't wear that N95 and you will get infected during your surgery. Um, I want to get some viewer questions. Simon in Toronto sent in this video. Let's take a look. It appears that many countries using pool testing have COVID-19 to a large degree contained and can react quickly due to faster turnaround times for test results. Why has the U.S. just started pool testing? Admiral? So thank, thank you for that question. So, and it's a really good question. Um, pooling is not as obvious as it may seem because when you pool numbers of specimens, you can lose sensitivity. In other words, you could miss people who are positive. So um, this went very fast. Uh, there are pooled testing now done at Quest and LabCorp. There is an, another lab that has self-validated that. So some of the major labs are doing that, but with only pools of four or five, because when you do more than that, you really risk false negatives. Now, we're doing a lot of technology work with the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense. We have many manufacturers and many universities trying to expand that. Uh, but right now, that's where we are. Um, in terms of authorizations to assure the quality. Because, again, uh, we want people to be sure that if they are told that they're negative, that that is almost certainly 100% true. It's never 100%. But when you pull more than five, sometimes there's 70%, 60%, 40%. We're trying to improve that, but that's where we are. You'll see more of this, particularly in our surveillance network, done in university labs, sort of below the diagnostic system. Uh, Dr. Joel, let's get to another question uh, from Howard from Mansfield, Texas, uh, which reads this, uh, with the upcoming flu season, how will someone be able to determine if they have the flu, influenza, common cold, or pneumonia, or COVID-19? Uh, it seems like a lot of the symptoms are the same for each. And I guess, Admiral, this is in the context of, again, not having enough testing. What would you tell us? Yes. What would you tell Howard? So it's a really good question, and I want to take the opportunity to urge everybody to get their flu vaccines because um, every year we lose 30,000, 40,000, 70,000 people to flu. I'm a pediatric ICU doctor. Every single year I had children who died in my ICU because of influenza, and, and that's just awful. So number one, please get your flu shot. We're ordering more nationally. We're going to have major campaigns. I'm working with a number of my authorities to improve the ability to provide that. But secondly, what we're seeing is that almost every platform, even a point-of-care platform and a laboratory platform, is doing what we call multiplexing. That means they'll be able to tell you with a single sample whether you have influenza A, influenza B, or COVID. Um, now, if you got really fancy, you could screen for like 25 or 26 viruses. People do that. But we really want to make sure that the things we can treat and the things we need to isolate are done. So you'll see that moving together uh, you know, very rapidly. And again... Um, by September, we expect about 65 million available tests. A lot of those are going to be um, multiplexed. Um, and with pooling, you know, that expands even more. Because if you pool three to one, four to one, uh, even on a, a small number of that 65 million, you get to 100 million pretty quickly. Uh, Admiral, uh, Admiral, thanks very much. Appreciate your Thank time. You, Admiral. When we, uh, when we return, one of the, uh, the Admiral's colleagues in the Coronavirus Task Force, Dr. Anthony Fauci, will join us. We'll be right back. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
We're talking tonight's scene in Global Town Hall with Bill Gates with the number of coronavirus cases passing 4 million today in this country and more than 144,000 lives lost here. And we've asked you, our viewers, to send in questions for Bill Gates, and you did, sent a lot of them in. So let's get right to them. Uh, we'll start with Ricky in Florida, who sent in this video. Let's take a look. Based on the learnings and experiences of the Gates Foundation and overcoming the lack of trust that some societies have had in getting vaccines for diseases such as polio, what suggestions or advice would you give U.S. health officials to help them to convince the nearly 50% of Americans who say that they would not get a COVID-19 vaccine if it were available today, that it is safe? That's a great question, Bill. I mean, lessons from around the world. I mean, polio, vaccine hesitancy is not unique to the United States. What, what, what would you say? Yeah, the tactic we've had used in the polio campaign is to figure out people's trust network. Uh, is there a religious leader or a tribal leader that they trust? And then to have that religious leader, uh, they are, you know, sincerely uh, a believer in the polio vaccine, stopping that paralysis, that they not only speak out about that, but they set an example. In that case, it's a, a vaccine for children, so they give it to their own children in a very visible way. And so when we had a horrific problem with that in Nigeria, uh, it was teaming up with those uh, traditional leaders that eventually uh, got rid of wild polio uh, in all of Nigeria, which was the last place in Africa. So it's it's reaching out and understanding that that web of trust. And it you know required huge effort, many years uh, here. You know, we want to convince people at least over 80 percent uh, to take this vaccine uh you know, next year. So, you know, I hope we figure out who the influencers are. Right. I think a lot of communities are saying right now, who are those trust leaders in our community, our society, whatever. I mean, the other thing that you hear is that there's this hesitancy, right? They, they, they'll get vaccinated, yes, uh, but we're going to wait for the second generation of vaccines to come out because that'll be safer. Uh, what do you say to that? Any validity? Well, when you take a vaccine, you're benefiting yourself in terms of uh, reducing the chance you'll get sick. Uh, with all medicines, there's some risk, uh, very small in almost all cases, but some risk you're taking, like you know, driving a car, doing a lot of things. And you're also benefiting other people because you, the vaccine reduces the chance of your being a super spreader or transmitting the disease at all. And so it is a community-based thing uh, that I hope people, you know, looking at what the FDA has done and that there weren't shortcuts taken. Uh, there may be pressure. There may have been pressure. There may be pressure. But so far, they're not doing that. Um, they're insisting on a efficacy, lots of testing in old people. Uh, and so I do think people have a tendency you know, to say this is almost like war. We've got to help our fellow citizens. Um, so, you know, I think we'll get the numbers down, although when they pull right now, you know, there's almost 40 percent of people have at least a little bit of hesitation. Hmm. Um, I was reading the New York Times. There, there are 16,000 Facebook posts espousing conspiracy theories about you and the virus. Uh, the, the, these, and I mean, I've seen these things uh, they're liked or commented on 900,000 times. 
On YouTube, the top 10 videos that spread lies about you had almost 5 million views. It's also pointed out that according to Zignal Labs, which is a media analysis company that tracks this, misinformation about you is the most widespread of all coronavirus falsehoods. Uh, so there's a conspiracy theory that uh, one, uh, uh, one of our viewers uh, asked about. I just want to play that, uh, that sound. What would you say to the fringe portions of the public, like conspiracy theorists, that seem to think that you're somehow responsible for the outbreak? There's also a conspiracy theory that you're pushing vaccines because you're going to inject people with a tracking device when they get the vaccine. It's all, it's all part of a so-called globalist plot to control the world. Uh, QAnon folks are, you know, which is actually a group that's been targeting me as well lately. They're claiming falsely that I'm somehow connected with Jeffrey Epstein and global cabalists of sex traffickers. It's insane. What, what do you say to people who believe this stuff? Because, I mean, I'm sure you are inundated by, I am, by people direct messaging me, just insane stuff. Yeah, the combination of having social media uh, spreading uh, things that are very titillating, uh, to have this pandemic where people are uncertain and you know they're, they're, they prefer to have a simple explanation, it's meant that these things are really, uh, you know, millions of messages a day uh, and people like myself and Dr. Fauci become the target. Often the clever thing they do, you know, our foundation has given more money to buy vaccines to save lives uh, than any group. Uh, you know, so you just turn that around. You say, okay, we're making money and we're trying to kill people with vaccines or by inventing something. Uh, and at least it's true, we're associated with vaccines, but you actually you know, sort of flipped <laughs> the connection that we have there. Um, you know, I'm, I hope it doesn't create vaccine hesitancy. I hope you know, this whole story of innovation that's going on, that we do get the benefit of that. It's really the only good news I'm bringing you today is that the diagnostic, therapeutic, and vaccine innovation, these amazing private sector companies uh, without the coordination you would have uh, liked, but they are doing it. Uh, and I do think people uh, on the therapeutic side will be surprised. And, you know, these are well-meaning people. You know, this is a time where people are uh, doing great work. And, you know, so I hope the conspiracy stuff dies down. Uh, it's, it's really the numbers kind of blow my mind. And it's not just the fringe people that you would uh, normally think of. It's not at all. I mean, I can tell you, I, I get stuff from people who seem, you know, they have lives, they have families. I don't know if they genuinely believe this and they've just been misled. But, um, you know, and for me, it's, you know, I, they claim I'm, I was on Jeffrey Epstein's airplane and going to his island with Tom Hanks or, or I mean, just, just insane, crazy stuff. Um, what do you, I mean, do you think, I know internet companies are looking at, at, at this. Do you wish that they would play a role in, in taking stuff down, which is as demonstrably false? Because, I mean, it does have real yeah, world, so you know, it does have real world uh, uh, impact on, on vaccines or, you know, a nut showing up to a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. with a gun. Yeah, in some cases they are taking things down. Um, you know, it... It's a bad combination, a pandemic and social media and people looking for very simple explanation. Who's the bad guy here? 
Um, and a lot of that's been connected to politics, um, more in the US than in other locations. Um, and, you know, of course, vaccines weren't uh, popular with everybody even before this all, all started. So uh, I, you know, I'm a big believer in getting the truth out. And if, if, but it's, it's kind of not as titillating to say, you know, uh, Cooper's innocent. Uh, oh, well, uh, you know, that's not as exciting. You don't forward that to quite as many people uh, as you do yeah. um, the, the, the accusation. Yeah. Some, sometimes the misinformation travels faster than the virus, it seems. Um, let's see if we can get to another question. This one is coming from a, a doctor in Arizona who writes this. Our focus, and rightfully so, has been on the current situation fighting the spread. How much time and resources have been employed to research post-COVID health complications? And uh, what specific health challenges, complications are you most concerned about? Bill, is this something that you've thought about or looked into? Well, certainly our foundation has a lot of biologists because, you know, seeing how this disease progresses, that gives us the clues to which therapeutics are going to to stop the disease. And, uh, you know, like many things like masks, we're smarter today than we were four or five months ago. Uh, There's an element that's the lungs, but it's broad inflammation and a lot of clots. Uh, There's an element that's autoimmune, about 20% of the cases, particularly the younger cases. And so we're we're coming up with diagnostics that differentiate the course of the disease. And then, you know, one of the drugs, uh, the only one other than remdesivir that's really been proven is uh, dexamethasone that Mm -hmm. our foundation was involved in. That's for that inflammation stage. So it's the late the late stage of disease. So these understandings are coming. I get, you know, journal articles, uh, four or five a day that, uh, you know, I don't read every word of, but it, they, scientists are doing a good job getting a sense of where we need to intervene. Early stage disease, it's clear, antivirals, antibodies, cutting down the viral load, that helps a lot. As you get to later stage disease, the virus actually isn't, isn't the problem anymore. It's the cascade of events uh, mostly connected to clotting in the immune system. And so, uh, you know, part of the reason the death rate is down is we know to use ventilators less. Uh, they use anticoagulants more. They use oxygen earlier. They look at the pulse ox. So the medical profession is is getting smarter every week. Uh, and eventually they'll be armed with the amazing therapeutics. Good question from uh, Cameron uh, from Virginia, which reads, what lessons have you learned from COVID-19 that'll influence how you allocate future funding for pandemic prevention? Well, the goal in 2015, when a lot of people in the global health community, including myself, spoke out, was to have practice that we would say, okay, uh, if you want diagnostics, what do you do? Well, the answer is you get the commercial labs to ramp up. Uh, But in the U.S., they actually put a roadblock in front of them, made it harder at first. Uh, and, you know, CDC had limited capacity and even wasn't able to deliver on that. So the, you know, just like you do war games, uh, you know, getting ready involves going through the scenarios. We will invest, and I know the U.S. government, other governments will, in having vaccine platforms that get us very rapid results. Likewise, Next time, we'll be able to scale up diagnostics 10 times faster than this time. 
and mm -hmm. antivirals and antibodies, we'll be able to do those more quickly. So, so you think we'll learn the know, lesson? It's, it, it's sad that it took this, you know, the, these deaths, the economic pain, the divisiveness that, you know, we're, we still aren't sure how quickly it'll end. But the R&D priority and the, and the potential to solve these things is absolutely there. And that's why I was excited in 2015 that if, you know, even if tens of billions had gone into these things, uh, this is exactly the kind of thing that could have been stopped before it did uh, significant damage. You, you do think, so these lessons you think will be remembered, because it does seem like at times we have a short, short attention and short memory when it comes to this. Do you think it'll be remembered or, remembered or will they, you think, fade away as this pandemic fades away? Well, this, this one will be remembered. Uh, and, you know, if it happens in your generation, uh, it, the priority of this funding, you know, I'm already seeing big big changes in how people think about this. Medical science, as you know, actually is moving a very good clip. So things like heart disease and cancer, you know, there's exciting improvements there. There's some tough things like uh, diabetes and Alzheimer's, but even those uh, are going well. And our foundation on infectious diseases, you know, we even talk about malaria eradication as a, a thing this generation can get done. So the understandings are improving, the tools will be there. The, a bioterrorist epidemic is more difficult because they'll design a pathogen that's designed to evade the tools that you have, whereas nature uh, isn't intentionally serving up things that go beyond what you're ready for. Do, is this just something that is always going to be with a uh, coronavirus, that this is something that's always going to be with us, COVID-19 particularly, and that we'll just have better therapeutics, better treatment of it, uh, better testing for it, and a more effective vaccine or vaccines that will help prevent us from getting infected, but it's always going to be out there? Basically, yes. There are There is a disease, smallpox, that we completely eradicated, and it's amazing, I was looking at the flu data, the flu's down in the Southern Hemisphere now, they, they are seeing dramatically less flu than ever <clears throat> because they took the steps uh, to stop coronavirus that also hmm. uh, tend to stop flu infection. So it, it is incredible. Whether which diseases are worth driving to zero or not uh, is always a question. It's very expensive to get to zero. For polio and smallpox, uh, it those for those diseases, it makes a lot of sense. But we'll have crossover diseases for a long time, and we just have to catch them early before they go exponential. You know, SARS, um, you know, was tragic, but in a very minor set of numbers. Mm -hmm. Ebola, we took our polio team, and they uh, all the personnel in Africa went after that and stopped it from getting out of the three countries. And so the numbers there also uh, were not, not that dramatic. So it should not be a dramatic burden on human health if we're alert. Um, you always worry that it'll start in a country with a very bad health system. So you worry about Africa. Here with China, even though you know, you will debate uh, how quickly they moved, at least you know, once they really saw it, they had the capacity uh, to, you know, share the virus yeah. and, and, and take dramatic steps, which when Ebola breaks out in Africa or other pathogens, 
it can fester a bit longer yeah. before it's clear. Well, you, you leave us with some hope tonight of better therapeutics, uh, you know, better testing by uh, the end of, of this year, uh, and then uh, vaccines in multiple stages. That's something uh, makes me uh, hopeful, and which I wasn't when we started this night. So I, I appreciate you being with us as always. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. Thanks. Our global town hall continues in a moment. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 